0: Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we pick up with Skip Sunberg in his second teaching session, which he presented at Mount Carmel in 2009. Doing uh, somewhat of a recap from yesterday and then picking up on stuff that I decided yesterday I was going to ignore and then decided this morning it was a mistake. Now, this whole business, this, this research project of mine, which has to do with repentance, formal worship, worship written down, right? Ratified by the church, put in a book and handed it on, that type of worship. And the sacraments, the connection of uh, those things, repentance, worship, and sacraments. And what got me going was because I used an old conditional absolution from the SBH, the Red Hindle one Wednesday morning in chapel, and all heck broke loose. Now, what was the basis of this absolution in which we loosed and uh, bind sins at the church, at, as the church? Well, it's the Bible, it's the office of the keys, where Jesus passes on to the disciples um, the power to forgive sins. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is a power given to the church. And it is a power exercised in the church across the centuries in relationship to preparation for Holy Communion. That's when it really happens. Uh, And the reason for that is because of Paul's command after he quotes what we now call the words of institution in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine the self. And he expresses it in a most sobering fashion, Look down towards the end of this. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. What the heck is that about? And imagine in the early church now, when you had few books and no radio and TV, (laughs) and uh, you're reading the Bible, poring over it line by line, and trying to understand, to discern what St. Paul means. And you run into this. Well, um, as I said, it caused a ruckus, and uh, I was accused of doing something that was un And I would have forgotten it, except that uh, when the Reclaim Hymnals introductory tri- uh, edition was put together, it also contained a conditional absolution in its service, according to good Lutheran practice. And again, all heck broke loose with the same type of arguments being made. Well, why? Uh, is it un No, as I shall show, but it's easy to see that Lutherans have practiced this. Is it some type of confusion of law and gospel or uh, some sort of theological faux pas that's being made? Well, if if it was a a mistake, it it would have never gotten in the liturgical liturgical tradition. It wouldn't have survived. So what's the real reason going on uh, uh, that's causing this reaction? Well, in my opinion, it's this. The conditional absolution of the order for public confession, no matter that it was part of the Lutheran liturgical tradition, engendered a harsh reaction in its statement of the binding key. Because it did not affirm the essential characteristics, indeed articles of faith, that are the hallmarks of mainline Protestantism in America today. Non-judgmental tolerance and accommodation to secular society. And by accommodation, I mean a form of progressivism in which an elite in the church believe that the faith and its sacred texts must conform to inevitable cultural imperatives of the age. And so you can't have these things. Now, uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, change the direction of the ELCA. Uh, That's not going to happen. Uh, And uh, I don't know what I think about all these things anyway. Um, it's one thing to uh, assert traditional piety. It's another thing to live with an entire group that follows it. And sometimes such people can be hard to live with. And uh, I need the grace of God as much as anybody here and have uh, benefited from the tolerance of the church myself. But uh, by golly, uh, what gets me is when certain things are called un Or not part of the Christian tradition, when what's going on is people are cherry picking things. And uh, as an historian, I simply won't allow that. Because before us came generations of people of flesh and blood who carried the faith forward, often at great sacrifice, and adhered to the fundamentals of the faith grounded in Scripture. And they must be respected. If you're going to change the way we do things in the church, then by golly, just do it. Stand up there and say that on this particular issue, the Bible is wrong. And take your licks. Or this tradition has to be stopped. Do, do it honestly. All right, stop yelling. So, well, well how do we get uh, at the, the identity of an institution across time, when we all know that things change, and change a lot. Well, here's where I picked up on this fancy word, morphology. Lutheran identity cannot be located in a single theologian, even Luther himself, or a particular school such as the orthodox or the pietist, or a single dogmatic principle such as law and gospel. The identity of the Lutheran tradition is an intricate affair that involves not only the investigation of Luther, the confessions, the important figures of academic theology, but also the record of communal texts, liturgical formulations, church ordinances, governmental regulations, politics, and culture that are a window on the social identity and piety of the Lutheran church at any given time and place. You've got to look at a whole bunch of things to see what we thought or we think. And to be sure, this complex record of material changes, but there are also things in it which are consistent. And those consistencies are the bedrock of the tradition. And they are there. Um, now, to look at the Lutheran tradition of worship, What it has to say about confession and absolution has to be understood in the larger context of Christian worship practice in the West, of which it itself says we are a part. Uh, Lutherans are in this peculiar place. We rebelled against Roman Catholics, but we kept strong and major elements of the Roman Catholic liturgical tradition. That's what we did. So we're this kind of bridge group, and you have to pay attention to that. Now, um, which brings me to this use of Ernst Trelch, um, who you will not forget what he looks like, because I told you he looked like Pancho Villa, and I did that on purpose, so you know what he looks like. You have his picture in the mind. Oh, he looks like that? What? Um, who talks about the social teachings of the Christian churches. And he divides into two groups. The church type emphasizes the role of the Christian community as an established institution of society and culture that seeks to be inclusive in its proclamation of grace as the assurance of salvation. The loosing of sins, forgiveness, not the binding of them, is the focus of worship. In this church type tradition stands the Orthodox in the East. The Roman Catholics in the West, generally speaking, although it's a very big church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopalians, or the Anglican tradition, and the Lutherans. (laughs) But there's also this other group, the sect. The sect type emphasizes faith as a decision, asserting that the normal beginning of genuine Christian life is spiritual transformation through explicit commitment to Christ and taking responsibility for one's life in moral terms, The sect type does not shy away from the exercise of the binding key. (laughs) Now, let me give you a particular and fairly quick example of the church type and the sect type in interaction in one person John Wesley. John Wesley was born into a family of Anglican clergymen, he was baptized. Uh, He grew up in the state church, and uh, because his father and grandfather supported what was called the Glorious Revolution, stood on the side of the angels, and uh, got the support of the House of Hanover, uh, Grandpa and Daddy did pretty well in the churches that they were able to serve, because priests in those days uh, could uh, get their income from a parish and the lands that it owned and the rent that it received. So this was an in-family. However, uh, Wesley's father got into a fight with his parishioners. Has that happened to any of the clergy present? Don't bother raising your hands. But in those days, they didn't fool around, so they decided to burn the house down with he and his family in it. Um, They had 18 children. Um, some of whom died in infancy, but many of whom survived. And the youngest at the time was young John, and he was hanging on the landing of the second floor when the house was burning down, and they got him just before it collapsed. And his pious mother said, following uh, the prophet uh, Zechariah, he was a brand plucked from the burning and kept telling him that God has a purpose for you. Well, he grows up in the church, Baptized, goes to Oxford, is involved in something called the Holy Club, which uh, did all sorts of good charity work. But John Wesley, you know this story, did not believe he was a Christian. And by golly, he was smart enough to know whether or not he was. Um, He fell in love with a woman whose uh, love was not returned, um, chased her all the way to Georgia, uh, kind of swooning and making a fool out of himself. Can you imagine that? Imagine flying all the way to Argentina to see somebody. <laughs> and uh, and he and uh, it was unrequited. Uh, he ended up uh, marrying and uh, on the rebound, and the marriage never worked. Uh, and, uh, one day when he was in his thirties, he went to a Bible study and Christ came into his heart and it changed him and he became a Christian. So he's born into the church type, but he becomes a sect type. Well, then he starts his itinerant peripatetic preaching in part to get out of the house. Bye honey. I'll see you in six months. He's preaching all over the place and uh, uh, stirring things up because at that time England was drunk on its rear end drinking booze. Gin was the popular drink, and the whole society was going to hell in a handbasket. And so, part of his revolutionary message, making a decision for faith, was this Christ loves you, stop drinking. But he said other things. He went to Bristol, a port city that was wealthy. An entire city that was built on the slave trade. That's how they made their money. And he told them, either you end this slave trade or you're going straight to hell. And they threw him out of town. Here's an apocryphal story of him, I wish it were true, on horseback, uh, praying. By the way, he, he invented a uh, uh, a saddle with a suspension system so that he could write and read while on horse. He, he rode 250,000 miles on horseback in his life. That's 10 circuits of the globe. Well, here he is on horseback, and he says, Lord, why hast thou abandoned me? What have I done wrong? How has thy servant failed me? It has been three days since anyone has been hostile to me. Well, a farmer sees this Anglican clergyman on horseback and uh, has a general contempt for the English clergy, picks up a rock, hits him in the head, and he falls off his horse. And Wesley says, Oh, God, thank you. I now know I'm doing right. Born in the church type, part of the sect type. And when I tell you that story about Bristol and slavery, you can see the difference. Can you not? All those good people in Bristol were baptized. All of them went to church. But this is how they made their living. And he, along with another adult convert who had been born and baptized into the church, but came to Christ as a young man, William Wilberforce, got rid of slavery in England after a long battle. As good Lutheran Pietists never stop saying, (laughs) Hitler was baptized. Stalin was baptized. The one United States president who really knew his Bible and uh, uh, related related what was happening in calamitous events in the country to the hand of God was Abraham Lincoln, and he was not baptized, nor was he a member of the church. So go figure. So to go between these two types uh, is to uh, um, uh, enter into something that's very interesting to explore and helpful uh, to sort of push through the jumble of events in church history. is also something else. Um, Trouch's distinction has been picked up by religious sociologists and used as a key or anchor to interpret modern church history. And um, what they say is this, the usual interpretation of the modern world has been uh, that the world has become increasingly secularized. Well, secularity is strong in the world, but we know that's not true. Um, Religion, for good or for ill, revives all the time. It's what happens and brings with it religious passion, which can be politically dangerous. Look at the Middle East. This world is not done with religion. And so uh, the more subtle interpretation is to see a yin and yang, a back and forth in the history of the church. Now, I don't have a PowerPoint for this, so use your imagination. Um, Pastor Björgi said it was okay to do so. Um, The church or a revival in the church often begins as a sect a small group, uh, bringing up the faith um, in white heat. But as it passes on and becomes an institution, things cool down, and it moves in the direction of the church type. To move from sect to church is called the process of secularization in the church, when the church accommodates itself to the dominant culture. But if it does so too much, there's a reaction, and then there's a move from somebody in the church type back to the sect type, and that's called revival. When Luther got started, they thought he was a sectarian, a heretic, and uh, off he went. But uh, over a couple of generations, Lutheranism turned into the territorial state church, and uh, things became a matter of course. But then figures would arise. Let's pick somebody close to home, Hans Nielsen A um, uh, Norwegian uh, farmer has a uh, vision in a field in April of 1795, if memory serves, and decides that what this church needs is Bible study. Imagine that. But the state church at that time where the clergy are in control, the church type, don't want lay people having this type of authority. He ends up being thrown into jail for 12 years. How would you like to be in a Norwegian jail around 1810? What was that like? But he had followers. And these followers would try to get people on their way out of church to join in Bible study. And my old colleague, uh, Todd Nickel whose particular field of expertise was Scandinavian Lutheranism, read me from a uh, Norwegian history book, a horrendous story in one small town of one of these pietist lay Bible study leaders um, making the uh, pastor so mad that he gets the local constable to tie him to the back of a wagon and drag him up and down the main thoroughfare in the town until he's dead. Remember a few years ago in Texas when they tied that uh, black man behind? I mean, what? The things that happen the church type and uh, the sect type. Now, in relation to these things, but especially the conjunction between the office of the keys. Paul's injunction or imperative to examine the self, uh, and the Lord's invitation to come to the table that he sets on the night in which he was betrayed to receive these holy things, uh, I decided to work with a sober definition of liturgical worship, formal worship, to call Christians to repentance to warn them to be under no illusion as to what they are and how far they fall short when they stand before God and holy things, to teach them to worship God in humility, to feed them the bread of life, to make them ready to give testimony to Christ in word and deed. Where is the grace in this? I said the grace is in the repetition that we can come again and again. Now, um, what was handed out to you yesterday was this order for public confession, which in this particular English edition was in the service book and hymnal, but goes back to 1888. And before that, uh, back to orders of public confession in the 18th century. Uh, Before the week is out, I can tell you that story. I don't know if you have it in hand. I forgot to ask you to bring it back. Um, But I just want to, um, to look at this matter because in the wisdom of the tradition, and I'm starting on page 249, this particular formal liturgical order is really well done. Um, it's meant for repetition. Now, I remember in high school, uh, to fulfill my arts requirement, I took music appreciation with Mr. Peter Brooks, who had been a trumpeter in Tuscanini's NBC Symphony. This guy was good. And uh, uh, in those days, uh, 1890, 1880, whenever it was, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Laugh, please. Um, music appreciation was classical music. And for most of the kids in this high school class, public high school, we didn't. You know, I happened to love classical music, but I was a weirdo. And uh, so what he did to start the class off, was the first five days of class, every day, he played the number one song on the Hit Parade. Now, I can't remember what it was, Teen Angel at the time, or I Want to Be Bobby's Girl. Uh, Rock was pretty basic in those days. But every day at the beginning of the play, you know, Teen Angel, (laughs) he'd play it every day. And then he would play uh, a movement from a Suite for Winds by Stravinsky. Well, the first day, you know, everybody knew the song, and, and uh, um, if Dick Clark were there, you know, he would have asked, what do you like about the song? Well, it's got a good beat. I can dance to it, you know. And uh, Stravinsky was uh, crazy. Five days later, just about everybody in the class was sick of Teen Angel. And the Stravinsky was starting to get interesting. Why? Because this type of music, classical music, is made for the long haul. If you're going to repeat something, it better have the goods. And uh, when you write liturgy, it's a corporate exercise, although it begins with individuals. It, it's grounded in the wisdom of the tradition, and things have to count, because you've got to do this again and again. You've got to use this thing again and again. Now, this was in the service book in hymnal, the Red Hymnal. When it came into use, I was 11 years old. When it went out of use, I was 31. When we began with that hymnal as an 11-year-old, 11-year-old boy, right, about the lowest form of animal life on the planet, (laughs) I didn't care anything about this stuff. But in the way of children, the words go in deep. Your mind is a sieve. It can remember anything. And it's the cadence, the rhythm, the particular words. You know how it is with a kid. You just see them in their particularity, and they go where? Way down deep. And when you're older, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It never works that way again. So the words meant nothing to me, while at the same time, they went what? Way down deep. So when you get older, and you have a few scabs and other wounds, <laughs> they start to count. So it begins, this public order for confession uh, and preparation for communion. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sins. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then it turns to Psalm 51, the great penitential psalm, the Psalm of David, which it says in the uh, subscription to the Psalm uh, um, that David wrote it after he had been with Bathsheba. Uh, The Bible tells us that David saw Bathsheba sunning herself, right? Susan Hayward played her in the movie. And the scripture simply says, it happened. And you know what happened. And we know what this is. There is a war between spirit and flesh. We don't like to talk about it in today's world because there's a cultural imperative that tells us that those things are passé and that we need to embrace this, that, and the other thing and um, fulfill our desires. But the war is still there. And the danger of what the Bible calls the flesh is a danger that David experienced and that is disordered passion. To get Bathsheba, he had her husband killed and he didn't even blink. Look at the poor governor of South Carolina. And there but for the grace of God can go anybody in this room. Your wife, four kids, governor, and he just takes off. What did he think? Well, he wasn't thinking. Disordered passion, however it's displayed. That psalm is connected with um, seeking the forgiveness of God and confessing things way down deep, things that are our desire and our passion and usually lead us astray. Luther said of his sob, uh, Who is the God that even David can go to him after what he did? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Hide thy face from my sins. Now you're you're a kid. Um, These words go down deep. They have the cadence of the King James Version to this day, the best and most literal version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, and then the day comes when you need them. (laughs) You need them every week. Well, you don't know that. But the day comes that you need them. And they're there because Christ is there. Um, offering you himself um, uh, with this blessed repetition. <laughs> and I have a, an orthodox icon up here, um, which is both stern and judgmental, but also inviting. Jesu Pantocrator, Jesus Almighty, the giver of life. He can take it in. Well, then passages are to be read, including 1 Corinthians 11, (laughs) in which uh, uh, that can be chosen so that you know uh, you are called to examine themselves. And then comes something that was added in the Reformation. It's called the exhortation to communicants. And uh, Luther replaced part of the Roman Mass with this exhortation in the vernacular, telling you exactly um, what the Lord's Supper means. Dearly beloved, the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ hath been instituted for the special comfort and strengthening of those who humbly confess their sins. Um, Then there's prayer, and then there's interrogation. I ask you in the presence of God who searcheth the heart, do you confess that you are by nature a most unworthy sinner and that you have grievously offended against him in thought, word, and deed and have merited only his wrath and condemnation? I do so confess. Serious business. And then we come to the absolution with the binding and the loosing key and then prayers at the end, including the Lord's Prayer. This is, this is a liturgy of great seriousness and soberness. It comes out of the wisdom of the tradition. And as I say, when you need it, it is there. Because the repetition is indeed blessed. First to get it into your bones. Uh, uh, but then, when that occasion arises, you're able to say... Um, he who says he has no sin deceives himself um, and to stand before the Lord and open the heart. So this is the type of thing that I'm uh, looking for. And um, uh, now, let's see, am I uh, ready to go here? All right. Um, back, back to the text Now, <clears throat> the church type, where such formal liturgy uh, can be found. Remember, as Trelch defines it, it emphasizes the role of the Christian community as an established institution of society and culture. It seeks to be all-inclusive in its proclamation. In the territorial church, a Protestant pastor in Europe paid by government fa- uh, funds had an entire area um, uh, uh, for which he was responsible. Um, uh, I remember an old teacher of uh, mine, Ed Dowie, once told the story, uh, this was after the war now, he'd grown up in Ohio with, uh, in a Presbyterian family, and he met a uh, Lutheran bishop, Bishop of Hanover, And he asked the bishop, uh, well, Bishop, how many people do you have in your congregation? To which the bishop replied without blinking, 50,000. 50,000. They're all mine. I baptize them, I marry them, I bury them. They're all mine. And they pay their taxes to get these services. So it's really all-inclusive. And in um, such a church... The loosing of sins, not the binding of them, is really the focus of worship. Yeah? Well, that's getting ahead of the story, but uh, not a bad guess. Not a bad guess. Uh, now, here's what, here's what uh, Trelch has to say about the theology of the church type when it's deeply embedded. When when, when, uh, the church is understood as this firm institution in society, covering all, think of Roman Catholicism in Ireland or Italy in its glory days, or Lutheranism in Saxony in its glory days. Salvation is understood as something finished, certain, sure, a pure gift of God, independent of the ego, of all one's struggles and subjective efforts. All it has to do is be appropriated by faith. The soul then absorbs the great principle of an objective, divine, creative energy, which affects everything in and through the individual, while it is itself quite independent of the individual." We're part of something greater. And uh, I may only half pay attention, but it belongs to me. And uh, the church encourages this. Um, But the danger is that familiarity and taking things for granted can breed what? Contempt? Um, And this is a potential danger to faith. It can tempt the Christian to take Christ for granted, to treat salvation as a matter of ritual formula done by rote. And this is the central problem facing what what Trelch calls the church type. The church type is that political form the church takes when grounded in the doctrine of grace as assurance. It conceives itself as a divinely sanctioned institution in society endowed with grace and salvation as the result of the work of redemption. A church conceived in this way tends to understand itself as part of the establishment. It accommodates itself to the dominant cultural elite. Uh, Membership in the church is usually defined as as sacramental incorporation through infant baptism. To identify a Christian by baptism avoids the thorny issue of what makes for a true Christian. It downplays conversion and individual commitment. Persons are assumed to be Christians as a matter of course, once baptized, always saved, as the saying goes. Church membership is treated like citizenship in the state. Both are understood as a matter of birthright, and the church type is able to receive the masses, to adjust itself to the world, because it can ignore the question of subjective holiness. Pastor Beard, said last night, I want to talk about a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And I know in the Lutheran church that we get nervous about talking that way. But the thing hinges on it. Now, acceptance of the masses of people encourages the church to adopt an inclusive principle of witness, to be tolerant, non-judgmental, offering the grace of God as a pure gift that requires no merit to receive it, and indeed can be universally given. Um, This is generally considered a good way for the church to be, especially in a modern democratic culture, that prizes tolerance above all other virtues. Um, And it's a virtue that we all prize. And I imagine all of you, or most of you, practice. But it's not without serious problems. By ignoring the need for holiness, the church type is in danger of creating a permissive environment in which members feel little or no obligation to adhere to strict standards of belief and conduct. A church with lax membership is a church without core beliefs. The imperatives of Scripture are avoided or ignored. And the fundamental biblical claim about Christ, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved, is disputed or even denied. There was a study done of a major mainline Protestant denomination in America, not Lutheran, but I'm not going to say which one, in the middle 90s. And uh, what they investigated was baby boomers who had been confirmed in this denomination, those blo- born between 46 and 64. They got some statistical sample of these people and tracked them down now in their adulthood. And they found that uh, the group fell into two types. Um, Those who uh, attended church regularly, um, supported the church financially. I've talked about this before here. And uh, most importantly, um, discussed the faith and made the faith part of their home life with their children. And the second group that attended church irregularly did not church support the church financially, and did not talk about faith with the kids. Which group would you want in your church, A or B? Well, they found what's called in sociology a social predictor of the behavior, either those who are active or those who are inactive. And the social predictor Uh, which correlated to over 70%, which in sociology is about as good as you can get, was the question, do you believe that salvation is by Christ alone? Those who believed it were active in the church. Those who did not believe it were inactive in the church. And in this denomination, over 60% of the membership, membership on the rolls, didn't believe it. Now, if this is denied, then mission, evangelism, and the nurturing of faith are enervated. Why are you going to take off for Africa and become a missionary if you don't believe it? The liturgy, central to the life of the church, uh, appears a flaccid exercise, a false language that talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. Um, Instead of increasing faith, or ratifying faith, the church type ends up with no treasures at all. And uh, then it ends up breeding nothing but contempt. (laughs) Now, I just gave you an example of that in Wesley. (laughs) Wesley goes down to Bristol, sees all these good Anglicans, and says to them, you built the whole thing on the slave trade. Stop it. Did they stop it? No, it was their whole life. And to choose between the two, they wouldn't do it. So they threw him out of town. And it took years, decades, before England came around. And it came around in good part by religious revival. William Wilberforce and Parliament bringing up the bill 20 years in a row. until enough seeds were planted that they finally acted on their faith and denied their self-interest. It's 1806. In the following year, uh, America outlawed the slave trade. Not slavery, but the slave trade. 1807. So, Wesley's a famous example of the sect type rising up and raising these questions. Um, Well, Um, One of the most famous examples that we have in Lutheranism is Soren Kierkegaard, who was as crazy as a loon. He was also a genius. And I'm told by those who know Scandinavian tongues that he pushed the Danish language in a direction that otherwise no one thought it could go. He was a poet of the language and recognized fairly quickly as such, although people didn't know what to do with his ideas. And he raises hell in Denmark, (laughs) Uh, beginning in the 1830s or so. Now, what's unique about him? See, I'm in prison here, let me get out for a second. What's unique about him? Well, a couple of things. If you ask, uh, who are the most important intellectual figures in Western culture, and you got a list of, uh, I don't know, 100 people, there'll be three Lutherans on it. Martin Luther, you will be at the top of the list, because for Western civilization, he's a big deal. Johann Sebastian Bach, any doubt about that? It's either he or Mozart, who's the top of the food chain, And the third one to get on the list is this crazy man Uh, because uh, he begins a philosophical movement called existentialism uh, which has influenced Western philosophy deeply to the present day. Well, what's it all about? Here's his unique place. Uh, The wars of religion were long over. Uh, Catholics and Protestants used to fight to each other with each other to the death over doctrine. They stopped it. 1648. We're not going to fight. We're going to live side by side. So that ends. Um, then there are all sorts of revolutionary movements uh, culminating in this uh, individual by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte. Ever hear of him? And Europe is, uh, is in upheaval with the French Revolution and its aftermath. But in 1815, Napoleon is put away. And Europe settles down to increasing its wealth. And wealth expands in Europe through trade and invention at the rate of 2% a year. For each year actually beginning in the early 1700s. You get to about 1830... Uh, They don't have indoor plumbing, you don't want to go to a dentist in 1830, or a doctor. But by golly, if you were transported back to Copenhagen, you would recognize these people. These are middle-class people. They have education and leisure time, and a basic prosperity that they're truly beginning to take for granted they're living like most of us. This basic level of comfort. comfort. A level for a middle-class Dane that was much better than any medieval king ever lived. (laughs) Um, But with prosperity and security in life, Uh, in this world under the devil's care, (laughs) new problems arise, like meaninglessness. What's it all about? What am I chasing this pot of gold for? Well, I got my profession, I got my house, I got the family, now what do I do? Boredom. Um, A basic level of discontent. And Kierkegaard knew that and understood it and explores it philosophically in a philosophical anthropology that really is grounded in the understanding of modernity, the modern individual. That's what he did. But he was also really nasty. And uh, he decided to attack the church as... uh, the territorial Lutheran church, as sort of the underpinning of this complacency and uh, offering up the gospel as, uh, um, as one more piece of property that people have in their lives without coming to grips with what was going on. So he rails against the church. And uh, here, here his... Here is his arguments, his argument. Um, Kierkegaard decried the tendency to accommodation, accommodation to which the church type is prone because it encourages a class of conventional or superficial Christians who are tempted by what he calls a secular mentality that wants to have the name of being Christian but wants to become Christian as cheaply as possible. (laughs) This is an evasion of the divine will. It's an illusion of the laity encouraged by the clergy whose proclamation of unconditional grace is motivated less by creed than out of a concern to keep their jobs and not rock the boat. This is just what he said. The clergy want to make faith as comfortable as possible. I'll tell a tale out of school. Uh, We, uh, this was in the middle 90s or so, um, decided to invite a psychologist in, a social psychologist from the University of Minnesota to do a survey of the environment at Luther Seminary. A society, a group, an identifiable group of about an, a year, any given year, about 800 people, all living together and interacting. Um, how can we make uh, the environment better? What are good things that we have? What are things that we need to work on? Um, so we paid this consultant to sort of survey. Without asking anybody, without, uh, um, I hardly thinking about it, but just operating on his own assumptions. Do you know what his measure was for chapel, which we have every day of the week at 10 o'clock, as to whether chapel was working or not, as to whether or not people were comfortable? And if they were comfortable, then chapel was success. If they were uncomfortable, then we had to do something about chapel to make it better. Didn't even ask anybody. Just sort of automatic. Uh, Well, as the armband says, what would Jesus do? (laughs) He'd come in and raise a ruckus, would he not? Well, this is the type of argument. By the way, the faculty, I can say, went the kibosh on the whole thing. And somebody got up in the faculty meeting, in faculty meetings at Luther Seminary are a circus. We all ought to be put on medication. How much money are we paying? What, what's, what, you what is going on here? I thought Jim Burtness was going to have a heart attack. Now... Um, The church type assumes that everybody's a Christian already, uh, membership guaranteed by the prestige of a historic institution enduring across time that possesses orthodox creeds and confessions, a divinely mandated liturgy, and above all, the sacrament of infant baptism, conceived, look at the quotation um, here, conceived as something magical to hold on to, that replaces the the responsibility of personal faith. Um, Now, Kierkegaard satirizes this as a Danish idea. (laughs) His specific object of derision is the Lutheran high churchman Nikolai Grundvig. But what he's after generally is the conventionality of nominal faith that characterizes the European territorial church. The church type has its defenders, usually church bureaucrats and academics, representing a high church party that claims the prestige of tradition. Um, Kierkegaard has little patience with this argument. He calls it sheer aestheticism. This is a Christianity from which terror has been removed. We read in Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is what? the beginning of wisdom. And you can see that fear in this public order of confession. This is what, this is what makes it sober and makes it lasting. Uh, no doubt it offers an appealing cultural vision of religion as a blend of sacramental theology, piety, and patriotism, but its driving force is to reduce Christianity to the lowest common denominator of the immature. So he writes this. The interest of Christianity, what it wants, is true Christians. The egoism of the priesthood, both for pecuniary advantage and for the sake of power, stands in relation to many Christians. And that's very easily done. It's nothing at all. Let's get a hold of the children. Then each child's given a drop of water on the head then he's a Christian. If a portion of them don't even get their drop, it comes the same thing. If only they imagine they had got it and uh, imagine consequently that they are Christians. So in a very short time, we have more Christians than there are herring in the herring season. (laughs) The confusion of Christianity and Christendom in the church type can have tragic consequences. The prime example is the German territorial church in the 1930s, which refused to face up to the threat posed by the Nazi ascendancy. And who spoke against that? What was his name? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And upon whom does his argument rest? Two people. Trelch, who who gave him the understanding of the church type, and the crazy Dane. So what does he say in The Cost of Discipleship that came out in 1937? Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasure from which she showers blessings with generous hands, without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. The church which holds correct doctrine of grace has, it is supposed, ipso facto, a part in that grace. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Uh, the Cost of Discipleship, in German, it's Nachfolge. comes out in 1937. I read it when I was in college. And, uh, you know, when you're a person that age, you're, you're willing to give your passion to something. And, uh, I mean, that, that book was, was, to me, simply white-hot. Now... <clears throat> Kierkegaard is talking about uh, bored uh, Copenhagen middle class. Uh, Bonhoeffer directed his criticism um, in a dramatic time. But what about the time in which uh, we live? Um, most More recent criticism of the church type has focused attention less on false teaching than on the ineffectiveness of witness. The church type, whether it's the European uh, Territorial Church or the American mainline, is declining in membership. So much so, and for so long, that this decline appears to be sociologically inevitable. The lesson seems to be this. If nothing is required of faith, why practice the faith at all? We see this weakness in both American and European Protestantism. In American mainline denominations, in America, America that should be, the mainline denominations have lost members steadily for over a generation. Since 1965, the Episcopal Church has lost roughly 35% of its membership. The Presbyterian Church, 45%. They get the Boopy Prize. The United Methodist, 25%. And the ELCA and its predecessor bodies, at the present time, 12%, although the rate of our decline is increasing. We're on a race to 4 million. And we've been doing this since 1965. That's over 40 years. And 40 years in the Bible is a very long time. In Europe, it's even worse. Um, Not only is there a decline in attendance... And uh, I'm one who happens to believe (laughs) that people can be Christian um, in all sorts of ways without going to Sunday church. They just don't, or they get out of the habit, or whatever. But still, at some basic level, uh, they have a Christian commitment. And it shows up when a baby's born, baptized, shows up at a wedding. Got to be married in the church. It shows up at the funeral. We've got to get the pastor. But what happens when people abandon these fundamental rituals? That's when they really have left the reservation. So, a uh, study done around 2000 in secularization in Europe. Look at this the proportion of babies receiving Catholic baptism in France fell from 91 to 51 percent between 58 and 90. In the same period, the percentage of those married in Catholic weddings fell from 79 to 51. In the late 50s, approximately 40% of females in Great Britain were confirmed in the Church of England. And they're looking at women because women more than men stay in the church. Between 61 and 74, female confirmation fell to 19%. At the present time, the Church of England faces what one scholar calls a recruitment catastrophe unless, as less than 20% of those baptized enter into full communion in the church. Churches in England on Sunday morning are empty. There's a big Nigerian church in uh, London um, with a big auditorium that seats 3,000. And the Nigerian pastor of this church has his service broadcast to Africa, and he was interviewed some years ago in the BBC, and he said the Anglican Church should simply give up the ghost. Let us take over. We'll get these people back to church. <laughs> so um, the church type is taught in um, caught in uh, um, this decline. And um, uh, when we find ourselves in this situation, we can't make grand pronouncements about who we are um, because uh, the emperor has no clothes. We can no longer afford to speak of the liturgy like romantics of a previous generation as the product and possession of the universal church that enshrines the faith and experience of every age and continent representing the objective, the universal, and the eternal rather than the individualistic and the temporal. Who's going to talk that way? You open the worship book and nobody cares? What happens? Um, J. Edward Carruthers. I'm running out of time here. Uh, Methodist pastor of longstanding... talks about paralysis in the mainline church. He's Methodist. And he says, a sure sign of paralysis for a a denomination is when leadership begins to make more and more of ritual, tradition, finery of symbols, and special attractions. It seems that there may be some relationship between the increased splendor of vestments in the chancel and declining power. It would be extreme to say that when heavy pectoral crosses adorn the vestments of the clergy, there is functional decline and passionate dedication to justice, mercy, and good faith. But the ancient prophets took a dim view of too much emphasis on finery. I'm an old guy, so I'm going to complain. When I was growing up in the church, the pastor, uh, and when I was a pastor, we came out for the service from the sacristy and sat down uh, to uh, get ready for the service, listen to the organ, and, um, and then open with a, a rite of confession. Uh, well, now in the church, we have processions. Uh, the choir comes in. Okay? That's an old practice. But the clergy march in. Do you know where that comes from? Ancient Rome. Uh, Procession of clergy in the Catholic Church, especially in Byzantine, was an imitation of the emperor and the powers of the emperor. Now, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the clergy who process, although I guess I am. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) But, you know, what are we doing with all of this pomp and circumstance? Now, the predicament-facing denominations that represent a church-type morphology structure now, all this stuff going on, which holds liturgy and sacraments in high regard, is of crisis proportions. What's to be done? Perhaps, and here's my proposal, we need to think anew about the purpose of liturgy, how it's handed down, and how this purpose is fulfilled. We need to do other things. We need to get off our rear ends and knock on doorbells and try to get people to come to church. We need to do all sorts of things. But one of the things we need to do is um, concentrate on what we do in worship. And here, this old understanding of the purpose of worship, um, uh, I believe, should be included. Um, It has uh, something about it that is deeply, and I think rather sexy, in its counterculturalism, um, making people pay attention once again to what they do. And um, in uh, doing this, um, we are paying attention to a deep theme in the sectarian tradition. This is what Kierkegaard did, and this is how he did it. Now I've got six minutes, I'm going to end with this, okay? Um, Kierkegaard said that to get the church going again, we have to realize that true Christianity is not to be found in an institution or a ritual, but in making of a, and now I'm going to say it, a personal decision of faith in Jesus Christ. To speak of personal decision is to employ a common term of Christian evangelicals. It calls to mind revival preachers on the sawdust trail, exhorting people to come forward to the altar and pledge their life to Jesus. But Kierkegaard places the idea of personal decision in a universal intellectual perspective of unusual weight by calling it the Socratic secret of Christian faith. Socrates is honored as a hero of Western thought because he taught the critical principle, the unexamined life is not worth living. With great courage and integrity, he chose death at the hands of the state rather than give up this principle. All people who desire to be truly human are called to the same principle and if necessary, the same sacrifice. Above all, obedience to this principle is the duty of Christians. This is because Christ died at the hands of the state for the same principle as Socrates. The difference is that that Christ invested the principle with the power of forgiveness and the promise of salvation that Socrates, a mere mortal, did not know. The ministry and passion of Christ reveals that the critical principle of the examined life is nothing less than the command of God, a duty incumbent upon all those made in the divine image. Now, in drawing a, uh, I'm going to just go off the reservation here. In drawing a parallel between Socrates and Jesus, Kierkegaard quite knowingly is drawing upon an ancient theologian by the name of Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr said that the seed of the Logos, the seed of the word, Jesus, is to be found in anyone who stands up for reason and good. Where such a person is, there Christ is. And he named them, including Socrates. And he said, all such people should stand together. And uh, that fundamentally, this is the desire of God. We have been taught that in the beginning, God in his goodness formed all things that are for the sake of men out of unformed matter. And if they show themselves by their actions worthy of his plan, we have learned that they will be counted worthy of dwelling with him, reigning together and made free from corruption and suffering. For as he made us in the beginning when we were not, so we hold that those who choose what is pleasing to him, will, because of that choice, be counted worthy of incorruption and of fellowship with him. We did not bring ourselves into being, but as to following after the things that are dear to God, choosing them by the rational powers which he has given us, this is a matter of conviction and leads to faith. If you choose the good, we stand with you. Now, Justin Martyr preached this message in Rome in the second century. Um, Tacitus, the great Roman historian, describes Rome of that time this way. Rome is the city where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Right? Los Angeles. And, uh, um, and Justin says, no, there is this other way, and wherever this way is, we belong to it, and they belong to us. And uh, Kierkegaard makes this basic to his teaching. I got one. Can I take a couple of minutes, Johann? Yes. D- all right, five minutes, and I'm done. Um, what he says, uh, yeah. W- what he says, what he says is this, and this is this is easy to understand. Um, it makes all sorts of sense. And he says it's basic to what the church has to do in the personal decision of faith. Each person, he says, goes through three stages in life. The selfish stage, the ethical stage, and the absolute stage. Um, The selfish stage is that stage in which we simply seek our own pleasure. Um, We have desires and we want to fulfill them immediately. Um, The trouble with this stage is that way down deep, it is not satisfying. We're not made for this. And so uh, we end up trying to run away from boredom, partying all night long, seeking something that we can't find, and then we just blow up. Think poor Paris Hilton. Right? Sort of caught in the selfish stage. Beautiful, having all the money in the world, to do what? But there's a second stage in life, and that's the ethical stage. And that's when we commit ourselves to something enduring. Uh, Kierkegaard's example for this is marriage. You make a commitment to something, somebody. We're going to make a life together. And you carry it out. Or, uh, <laughs> as uh, happens at Luther seminary, these young people and middle-aged people come in and they decide they want to go into the ministry and what it costs them financially, uh, what it costs them in time, what their families have to endure while they're going through this, all to get to this goal. Um, Well, that's making a commitment to something enduring. But that is life, is it not? And that's where the satisfaction of life comes. When you sacrifice for something, And you make a life. But finally, there is the absolute stage. And that's when you stand before God alone. And everything peels away. Everybody's going to get to the absolute stage. When? When? When you die. You ain't going to miss it. Um but Christ calls us to it in the midst of this life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will follow. The church, says Kierkegaard, is scared stiff stiff to teach such a thing. Now, Bonhoeffer picks this up. Here's how Kierkegaard puts it. Remember that the higher the religious is taken, the more rigorous it becomes, but it does not necessarily follow that you're able to bear it. Um, Here's what Bonhoeffer says 1937, Germany, you know what happened to his life. Through the call of Jesus, men become individuals. And for Kierkegaard, this is right out of Kierkegaard's philosophy. An individual is not somebody who's seeking their own desires. An individual is a f- fully formed self. Somebody who's selfish is not an individual. Somebody who goes through the ethical stage and sacrifices to accomplish something, that's individual. That's, w- that's when you're becoming truly human. And then facing, going through the absolute stage, it's complete. That- that's how you're shaped. That's the purpose of a life. So he's not talking about individualism. Through the call of Jesus, men become individuals. They're compelled to decide, and that decision can only be made by themselves. Christ makes them individuals by calling them. Every man is called separately and must follow alone. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Bonhoeffer goes for the juggler by quoting one of the hardest verses in the entire Bible. Um, well, this is the stuff of faith, and it's deeply embedded in the sect type. Sect type is a voluntary society composed of strict and definite Christian believers bound to each other by the fact that all have experienced the new birth. These believers live, live, live apart from the world, are limited to small groups, emphasize the law instead of grace, and in varying degrees within their own circles set up the Christian order based on love. All this is done in preparation for an expectation of the kingdom of God. That's the the sect type in its ideal. And it's forbidding. (laughs) It's forbidding. But there it is in extremis. Um, Pastor Bjorgi mentioned mentioned, uh, St. Francis of Assisi last night. What did St. Francis do in the midst of this rich Catholic church in the Middle Ages, son of a rich merchantman, He stands in the square and he takes all his clothes off and gives up everything. Um, Whatever else that is, by golly, that's a religious person in the absolute stage. And what he did after that is remembered. Um, The world needs such figures. Uh, It needs uh, uh, Sister Teresa. Uh, Is that her name? My Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa. Uh, We're not going to live up to that. But we know it's true. And it's the basis upon which to think about these things. Okay, I'm sorry to go over. Um, Let's pick this up tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today on the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow for Skip Sunberg's next teaching session.